This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152. This is lecture number three, and today's subject is uh, mutation rates. Okay, so like we uh, started last time and, and we will throughout the course, I want to check the temperature in the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Just to update you on the numbers and news that, are, that is coming out, uh, the things that I find uh, most compelling at the, at the moment. Uh, certainly, I can't do an exhaustive review of everything that's happening with COVID-19. And so before we were looking at this data, uh, this is from the New York Times, and um, I had shown a week ago that I thought that the trend was slowing down so that we weren't growing the new new numbers of cases per day, uh, but that did not happen a week ago. It does appear, though, that maybe we're not in exponential growth anymore, that maybe uh, the rate of increase of cases has stabilized, and so maybe we're, we're, we're sort of heading towards that plateau and that peak that we've been talking about on the news. So there is, um, there are lots of websites and different mathematical frameworks in which you can make predictions um, for when the U.S. will actually experience its peak. We've talked about other countries in previous lectures, and it appears that many other countries have already reached their peaks and that the number of new cases of COVID-19 is decreasing through time. And so hopefully they're, they're through the worst of things. Although, of course, the virus is still there and can reemerge um, and re begin to reinfect a lot of people if we don't uh, remain uh, distant from each other and practicing all the, the, the strategies that we've employed to, to mitigate the spread of the disease. Okay, so um, this is a plot uh, from this website down here. It's, it's, uh, uh, the website is hosted by IHME. And this is an interesting website where you can go in and you can make predictions for the, um, the dynamics of COVID-19 in different countries, also in different states within the United States. So right now, I generated the plot for the United States. And um, what it's predicting now is, um, so we have on the x-axis time, that's in, in uh, months. And on the y-axis, we have resource count. Um, and so what are the resources? The resources are beds in hospitals. Um, and there are different types of beds in hospitals or even uh, equipment in hospitals that are, that's important, such as invasive ventilators. Um, and so uh, these, are, these are, given the dynamics of the disease, what do we expect, what do we anticipate the Will, will be the demand of the number of beds we need at any given time in a hospital, or the number of ICU beds, or the number of people that will have to be on ventilators. Um, and so what we find here is that, you know, we expect the peak uh, to occur in about eight days. Um, this is consistent with uh, what the federal government has been telling us, that this weekend we should um, not go out. Uh, we shouldn't be going out at all, but really, if you can avoid things like the grocery store this weekend, I would suggest to do that. Um, so the next couple of weeks are, are probably going to be the roughest, the, the highest instances of disease, 
and therefore the highest rate at which, or the highest potential in which you can catch the disease. Okay, so this is the pattern for the United States. Um, you see that you know there's you, we'll need lots of hospital beds. We'll need fewer ICU beds. But remember, ICU beds are very expensive, and hospitals have few of them relative to just generic hospital beds. Uh, and of course, we need the the ventilators as well. So if you go state by state, and I'll use California as an example because we're in California, or most of us are, um, and uh, you can you actually they then plot two new lines on this graph. Um, and so this line here, this stable line through time, that's the number of hospital beds that are in California. Um, and so we have a set number of beds. Of course, we could increase this, but you know, for this, for this uh, um, uh, graph, they've just set it uh, standard for the, uh, through the entire course of the, the epidemic. Um, and then what we have here is the number of ICU beds throughout California. And if you have been paying attention to the news, there's this concept of flattening the curve. We'll go through the math in this course on how that actually works. Um, but the idea there is that you want to, um, through social distancing and other measures, you want to reduce the rate at which the pathogen is spread between people, um, the number of infected people, and you're going to try to shoot to reduce that rate so that um, at any given time, very few people are actually infected with the disease and that number is much less than the number of hospital beds you have in a given region. And so California was one of the first states to um, implement this, this stay-at-home order. Uh, and I would say that compared to the, the national dynamics, so this is the national dynamics and this is what's happening in California, um, it appears that the curve does, does look flattened uh, compared to the national uh, dynamics. Um, and it looks as if what is predicted to peak around here um, is well, well, well below our capacity, our, our hospital capacity. So hopefully that means that um, everybody who does get sick with COVID-19 will get a hospital bed uh, and get good care. That's most important for, for people's survival is that they get good hospital care. Um, okay, so I should mention one other thing that I didn't mention before. Um, what this is, is this is the average uh, prediction for the model, but there's some error in that prediction. And so that error is demonstrated by the um, shading around the dotted line. Um, and so this, what I just said is true for total number of hospital beds uh, in California, but it's also true uh, for the total number of ICU beds in California as well. Uh, and we have not plotted uh, or they have not plotted um, the number of ventilators that we have in California, but I assume that there's actually, um, uh, that we have a lot of um, ventilators because our governor has donated 500 of them to the, the National Reserve of Ventilators um, that will probably go to states like New York, which are um, maxing out their hospital capacity at the moment. Okay. So this is good news for California, uh, but the reason why this worked is because we're staying at home and we're social distancing. So this is saying that um, this model here predicts a peak at eight days. I should say that this prediction has changed even within this, this same website as more data comes in. Uh, a while ago, the peak was a couple, uh, was 
maybe something like 20 days, like three weeks away from right now. Um, and so what I want to say is that these are model predictions and they have a lot of error associated with them. Um, and obviously they're trying to predict something that's very complicated. And so while this is our best guess, um, they could be wrong. Um, we could get much closer to maxing out our, our hospital capacity um, than the models predict. Um, or, of course, you could also get a more optimistic outcome than the models predict. Um, but the point is, is that it gives us some bearing on what's, what's going on and what we expect in the future to get ready for. Uh, and in this case, it, it um, helps us see that our practice of social distancing is probably helping diminish the spread of this disease in, in flattening that curve. So this is data from the New York Times. Um, and I kind of wanted to challenge you guys to test this hypothesis that social distancing flattens the curve. And so what this map is showing us are regions of the country where people um, stopped moving around as much as they typically do. Um, and so if you have this sort of this um, dark green color to the red, so dark green uh, means that people stopped moving around very much um, early on um, in, the, in the pandemic. Whereas if you have a red, it means that people really haven't slowed down uh, their normal daily lives. They're still traveling around a lot. Um, and this, this is data that's generated from cell phones. Um, and so it's, it's amazing that we have all this data and we have a, such a clear picture for what's going on around the country. Um, and what you can see is that many of the states that have not issued orders to stay at home, uh, the people are not staying at home. Uh, so that's pretty obvious. Um, and so the, what, the, what I challenge you guys to do is to go onto this website. And this is, this is not uh, a part of your homework or you won't be graded on. But if you're interested in, in testing this idea that whether or not social distancing uh, does flatten the curve, what you can do is you can generate a prediction for California, which had social, which is implementing social distancing. Here's the data that shows us that people are staying at home um, and look at the, the shape of the curve um, relative to some place like Alabama, uh, where people haven't, um, there hasn't been an order yet and people are basically keeping on with their normal lives. Uh, and so you'll see that there's a pretty striking difference between places that have implemented social distancing and places that have not. Okay, that was our, our temperature check. And now I'd actually just like to get into the lecture. Um, and this lecture, like I said, is on, on mutation. And um, I guess I want to start out with SARS-CoV-2, um, but we will talk more generically about just how mutations work uh, throughout this lecture. And a lot of the examples I'll give are actually on, on bacteria. However, mutations in bacteria work the same way as mutations in viruses. So anything that I'm lecturing on with bacteria, um, you can also apply to, to viruses. And so here's the SARS-CoV-2 phylogeny. I've shown you this before. This is the data from nextstrain.org. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that the phylogeny looks a little different this time. That's because the, the um, x-axis here is uh, different. I used a different setting to generate it. Um, now the phylogeny is not time, but it's based on um, 
uh, numbers of mutations. And so the overall structure of the phylogeny is actually the same, um, but just the distance and the, um, on the uh, x-axis is going to be slightly different. Um, but what this, what this is showing us is how many mutations separate one isolate of SARS-CoV-2 from another isolate of SARS-CoV-2. And so what, what do I, we'll get into phylogenies later in the, in the lectures, um, but what, what I'm showing here is this is a virus from one point in time and uh, they sequence the whole genome of that virus. And then they ask, well, how does this virus relate to uh, an older version of a virus, one that we isolated uh, maybe two months ago? And so for this virus here, you can go back in time and you can see that, oh, there's about, you know, probably about um, 12 minus four, so eight mutations that separate it from this virus down here. So this is recording genetic distance, how many mutations have, have evolved in these genomes over time. And so as more time proceeds, then more mutations accumulate um, and you get more differences between all of these, these strains. And those differences give us this, um, this phylogenetic resolution so that we can establish evolutionary relationships. Okay, so that's sort of thinking about phylogenies and how all of that works is for later on in the, in the course. What I want to talk about right now are these mutations. You know, how do they even arise in the first place? You know, we started out this epidemic and then turned into a pandemic uh, with a single strain of a virus um, that then began to spread and grow and spread and grow. Um, and that strain began to mutate. And now we have all of these very different strains of uh, SARS-CoV-2. So how did that, where, where did that mutation come from? What are characteristics of those mutations? That's what I wanna talk about today. That first step in the evolutionary process is uh, mutation. Okay, so the first question is, is where do mutations come from? That'll answer. The next question I'll focus on answering are, are mutations random? Are they spontaneous? Do they just randomly occur? Or is there a reason why mutations happen? Um, are mutations, if we do find that they are in fact random, are mutations predictable? And the last one is, how do we actually measure mutation rates? Okay, so where do mutations come from? Well, you know, when a virus replicates like the like SARS-CoV-2, um, it has a polymerase that it uses to, to replicate in its RNA. Uh, so remember that this is an RNA virus. Um, and so it uses this uh, polymerase here, it's called NSP12. Uh, and basically what this polymerase does is it attaches to an RNA strand of the virus and it replicates that RNA strand and it keeps doing that, making more and more RNA strands. Um, and those then are the, the genomes for future, future viruses. Um, and so we, we did go over the life cycle of um, the SARS uh, last time. And so just picture, you know, where it is in the, in the cell and that it's, it's replicating these RNAs. And so where mutations come from is the fact that 
this machine is not perfect and that at some rate this polymerase fails and messes up that sequence, that RNA, that, that string of RNA. And so when it makes a mistake, that is when a mutation is introduced into the genome. And so the viral particle that gets that copy of the genome will then have mutations uh, that it then passes on to its progeny in the, in the, in the next infection cycle. And so this is true for uh, viruses, it's true for bacteria. When you're replicating DNA, you begin to introduce uh, mutations because these molecular machines, just they're, they're very good. Natural selection has optimized them to be very efficient and be very, um, uh, have high fidelity, but, uh, but they're not perfect. And so the types of mistakes that the polymerase can make are kind of two different kinds of mutations. Um, one are point mutations. This is where, say you have an A or a G, um, it would accidentally insert a C or a, a U or a different uh, nucleotide. Um, and so these are point mutations where just a, a single nucleotide gets replaced with the wrong nucleotide. Um, the other thing that can happen is that you have insertions and deletions where whole segments of RNA are deleted or whole segments of RNA are added uh, back in. And so uh, these are the, the general type of mutations uh, that happen in genomes. We are gonna focus on point mutations. Those are the, the easiest to, to understand how they work. Um, and so most of this class uh, are, are focused on just those type of mutations. Uh, indels tend to be a little bit rarer um, and harder to, harder to predict. I wanted to note that this is these mutations for uh, SARS happen in RNA bases, uh, but these same type of mutations can also happen in DNA-based genomes as well, DNA-based viruses or bacteria or our own genomes, so forth. Okay, so the first um, subject that I want to talk about is the is getting to the, the nature of mutation. Are mutations random mistakes or do they arise to aid adaptations? And so this is a very old debate in evolutionary biology. Um, and you probably learned about this debate um, starting uh, you know, in intro biology class, maybe even in, in high school. Uh, and so I wanna review the debate, but I wanna go much more in depth into this debate and what is, what, what's the data that helps us um, prove one hypothesis wrong and in support of another hypothesis. And so uh, the debate is between Lamarck and Darwin. There are two different models with how evolution works. Uh, Lamarck thought that mutations are directed from the environment to produce adaptations. And so often people think of that example of a giraffe where a giraffe uh, is trying to reach higher and higher uh, to get leaves from taller and taller in the tree. Um, and uh, this creates some kind of feedback so that the giraffe's progeny in the next generation will actually have longer necks. And then the next generation will have even longer necks and so forth. And so that's, that's, that's where there's a need uh, from, the, from the environment that then has some way of altering 
the genome and causing mutations that will uh, fit that need. And the second hypothesis is from Darwin, and that's uh, that mutations are completely random and that there's just genetic variation that arises during the natural process of um, replication. Um, and that then the way that you get adaptations is that those good variants are selected for, tend to give rise to more viruses or more bacteria. And so the population will, will change in time um, to better fit its environment. And so these are two opposite ideas. One is directed and one is random mutation. And so, you know, we, we basically all know that um, this debate has gone towards the side of Darwin that mutations are random. And so why am I at this, at, at this time um, going to such detail on this debate and whether or not mutations are random or spontaneous versus uh, directed? And uh, the reason is that this debate actually keeps emerging in the literature um, one decade after another. And so here are just examples of papers from the literature about this debate. So this is a review paper. There was a big debate in the 90s over whether or not mutations in bacteria were directed versus um, spontaneous and random. Um, and then here uh, um, in 2012 and 2015, uh, we see another set of papers where one is proposing that mutations are non-random and another paper looks at different data to say that no, 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 even um, there's something wrong with this analysis and that mutations are probably actually random. And so this keeps re-emerging. And I have to say that um, when I was a PhD student, I was at a uh, defense department um, meeting about medicine and evolutionary biology. And um, I remember talking to a few doctors and those doctors telling me that, oh, no, 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 mutations are not random. Uh, they're directed, there's something more going on that evolutionary biologists don't know what they're talking about. And it always sort of, um, I don't know, irked me that, that uh, these doctors who didn't have much training in evolutionary biology were saying these things. Uh, and so when I teach this course, I like to go over what is the evidence of um, that mutations are, are in fact random. Uh, it's, a, it's a really nice study that proved this. Um, and it's a pretty old study, but often people don't know about it. Okay, so my question to you is, do you know the experiment that proved that mutations are spontaneous? You may think that they're random and spontaneous. You may have learned that, but do you know the data that actually shows us and the reasoning behind how we could know that? Okay, so this experiment uh, was performed by Lorian Delbrook. Uh, this is an interdisciplinary team of scientists. Loria was a microbiologist and Delbrook was a physicist. Um, they began their collaboration around 1940, so a very long time ago. Um, they published their proof that mutations are random in 1943, and in 1969, they won the Nobel Prize. So this is a really cool experiment, helped them get the Nobel Prize, um, and it's such a simple and elegant experiment um, and it's something that you could do, you know, just over the course of a couple weeks in the lab. And, but it, 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 because of the elegance of the logic and the mathematics that Delbrook, the physicist, came up with, uh, they were able to come to this really important conclusion. Okay, so I just want to sort of go back in time and think about 
what microbiologists were doing in the 1940s um, that led them to ask these questions about the randomness of mutations. And so microbiologists at the time were fascinated by a lot of things or growing, you know, bacteria in the lab. Um, but they had also found um, these viruses of bacteria. So often we think of viruses as infecting us, but even bacteria have their own viruses. And those viruses are called bacterial phages. Here's a picture of, the, of, of one type of bacterial phage. And so um, microbiologists at the time would take a test tube, they would take you know, one cell or a few cells of bacteria, and they would grow it up in the test tube, um, and then they'd get a really dense stock of the bacteria, and then they'd expose that dense stock, stock of bacteria to lots of different perturbations. And one of the things that they would expose them to uh, are phages. And just to you know, be able to see how, how good are the phages at killing and, and so forth. Um, and so what, they're, what I'm showing you here is that they're putting um, the, the bacteria onto a, a Petri dish, and then they're also putting a layer of phage over top the bacteria. And so when they would do this experiment, what they would find is that after 24 hours, so they take this Petri dish and they incubate it for 24 hours, they would begin to see colonies of bacteria. Not as many, like it, it, they wouldn't cover the entire plate. Um, so that, that told the researchers that the phage were actually killing off the bacteria or killing off most of the bacteria. But there are some of these colonies of bacteria that were growing. And so what is a colony of bacteria? It's where a single cell lands on a Petri dish and then it begins to replicate and grow. And then over 24 hours, you have a big mound of cells. And this mound of cells um, then is visible by your eye and it looks like a colony on a Petri dish. And so they knew that they had put, you know, 10 to the eight cells onto this Petri dish, but they only see three colonies, suggesting that only three of those cells actually survived phage infection. And so the question was, were these just lucky bacteria that survived? Maybe there was a space on the plate where the phage didn't make it to, and so these bacteria could live. Or were there genetic changes in the bacteria that allowed them to resist the phage? So that's the question. And so the way that they tested this is that they took a subsample, just a few cells from each of these colonies, and they replated those few cells onto a Petri dish that also had this layer of phage on it. And they said, well, if these, if these bacteria were just lucky, then when we introduce them to a new plate, the chances that they'd get lucky twice is really low. And so therefore, if we see colonies growing in 24 hours on that new plate, then we know that this, these are different bacteria. They've changed in a way, they've mutated in a way to confer resistance to the phage. And so, uh, they did the experiment and they found that each time they picked a few cells and put them on the new plate, um, those cells would grow into these uh, colonies of bacteria that were resistant to the phage. So then the next question is, what's the nature of that change? Was that change uh, directed from the environment? Did the cells actually experience um, uh, the phage and that then triggered the cells to mutate in a way to resist the phage? Or 
were these random mutations that arose in when they were growing up the cells and you know they arose coincidentally and it turns out that they had this benefit for the cells when they were transferred to the environment with all of the phage but that there wasn't a direct connection between that challenge in the environment and why that mutation arose so this is just a slide that repeats what i just said um the and i i guess i want to say that from you know many many decades later it seems apparent to us that mutations are random but at the time it really was not apparent to people that mutations were random in microbial populations especially um, and the reason is is that when they would run these experiments and they would challenge these bacteria to be resistant to phage they would always find mutants almost always find them and so it seemed that there was a direct cause you challenge a bacteria with a phage, it figures out a way to resist it. However, the, the more acceptable um, hypothesis now is that no, mutations are spontaneous um, and that there's a decoupling from uh, mutations uh, and, and uh, the benefit that they, that they provide. So, um, let me, I just wanna go, go through here uh, and sort of talk about these two different hypotheses and the mechanics of this experiment. And so, um, you know, like I said, we're starting with a test tube with a single cell in it. We're allowing that cell to grow and divide. Um, and so now I have a, a new picture, just keeping track of, we started with one cell, now we have two cells and so forth. And so now we, they divide again, both of the, the cells, and now we have four cells and now we have eight cells. We take those cells and we put them on their Petri dish. At the, at the time that we put them onto the Petri dish, there are you know, eight cells on the surface of that Petri dish. Then, um, because the cells are being exposed to the, the phage, they have some low probability of inducing a mutation that confers resistance. It's not a, it, people at the time were not saying that this would be 100% effective, but that there's some probability that once you expose the bacteria to the phage, they would induce a mutation. And um, then what would happen is all of the cells that didn't have that induced mutation would die off. And the cell that had the mutation would then grow and form into a colony. And that's what you would see, um, you know, a day later on the, on the Petri dish. The second hypothesis is spontaneous mutation. And so what, what's happening in this model is that we have a cell growing up, it's dividing again, so now we have four cells, and now we have eight cells. And during that growing up process at some point, and this is the last round of replication for this, um, uh, for, for this diagram, we have a resistant mutant arising. Then we plate all of those cells onto the, the Petri dish, including the resistant mutant, and then after 24 hours, all we see that's left over is a resistant mutant. The difference between these two hypotheses is when this resistant mutation arose. In this model, the spontaneous mutation model, it arose in the test tube before the bacteria ever encountered the phage. Uh, in the other model, it arose when the bacteria encountered the phage. And so, um, Laurie and Dalbrook, they were thinking about these two different models and they were thinking about, well, how should our simple experiment, how would it behave under the induced mutation model 
or how would it behave under the spontaneous mutation model? And uh, so what they were thinking about is really when does this mutation occur and should we see different results on our Petri dishes? And so what they had actually begun to predict is that under this induced mutation model, um, the, the mutations are always arising when the, the bacteria contact the plate. And so there should be relatively few um, uh, resistant colonies on those plates, but the number of resistant colonies should be very consistent because there's some probability that when they encounter that phage, um, they will mutate, the, their mutation will be induced. And however, the, the alternative hypothesis, the spontaneous mutation, when mutations can occur at any time during replication, not just when they hit the plate, um, then mutations may occur, you know, right before they go onto the plate. Uh, mutations may occur um, much earlier in the replication process. And if this happens, this is called a jackpot mutation. What that means is that, uh, sorry, my, my dog is walking around the room right now. Um, so if there's a jackpot mutation, um, then it happened early in the replication process, and all of the descendants of this uh, mutant here are also all resistant to the phage. And so now what you're going to see is a Petri dish that has many, many colonies on it. And so, and then you could imagine in some populations um, when the bacteria are growing, you know, since mutations are random, sometimes they just don't happen. And so if they don't happen, that population's unlucky, well, that phage is going to be able to wipe out that population of, of cells. And so you don't get any, um, any colonies growing uh, on, that, on that plate. So, um, so this is the real difference between these two hypotheses in running the simple experiment is that under this hypothesis, you should see very little variation in the number of colonies that form on the plates. Whereas in this hypothesis, um, be, you should see a lot more variation in the, in the number of colonies. So you should think about both of these hypotheses as being a, a coin flip kind of process. But what's different between them is where that coin is being flipped. Okay, so in the first hypothesis, the coin is being flipped in the transition from uh, right when the, the cells are being applied to the, the plate. And so it's, it's only happening once during each of these experiments. And there's some probability that, you know, those cells will mutate and get, a, get an induced mutation. Um, and so there'll be little, little variation in the number of colonies that actually form on that plate. Whereas in the second hypothesis, it's also a coin flip procedure where there's some probability that a mutation will arise, but that coin is flipping at each and every time that the cell is replicated. And so sometimes that coin can flip and land on heads early, or sometimes it can land on heads later, and that will affect the number of colonies on the petri dish and so when you repeat this experiment many many times and you have many many petri dishes you should expect to see a really wide variance in the um, number of colonies observed when you repeat the experiment and so this is where this um, collaboration between Laurie and Dalbrook came in is that 
Loria was doing the experiments and knew a lot about microbiology, whereas Delbrook uh, was a physicist and was knew, understood sort of the math behind um, predicting um, distributions of the number of colonies that you expect to see on plates. Um, and so uh, they created their Laurier and Delbrook distribution, um, and then they compared it to a more normal, or not normal, I'm sorry, a more typical distribution, which is the Poisson distribution. And so um, what I'm showing here are two different distributions. Um, and so this is just the histogram where the y-axis has the number of plates in the, in the experiment that have either zero colonies or 10 colonies or 20 colonies or so forth. And so the two different theories uh, predict uh, two different distributions. The Lorian Delbrook, like I said, has lots more variants so that some plates are loaded with bacterial um, colonies and some plates have zero. Whereas this Poisson distribution, maybe some plates have zero, but most of them have some intermediate value of, of colonies. And then they just really don't have these outlier plates where you have lots and lots and lots of colonies. And so that was, that was what the math told them to, to expect between the two different hypotheses. Um, and so they actually did the experiment and they found that, um, and this is obviously just a cartoon, but they found that there was a lot of variance in the number of colonies uh, on these Petri dishes. So here's the actual data from the experiment in the paper um, published uh, in 1943. And um, so this is just the table and it says, you know, number of resistant bacteria, number of cultures. Um, uh, and so this is just two sets of, of, um, of uh, similar, uh, similar types of data. The data just repeated a couple different times. Um, and here are the distribution. Here's the distribution that they found. And so they have an observed distribution and they have what they expected from the math. And what we find is that the, um, this expected is for the Lorian Delbrook distribution. And what they find is really close matching uh, between what they actually observed in the experiments and, um, and what their math told them to expect. And so, um, you know, they proved that mutations were spontaneous um, and uh, they ended up winning the Nobel uh, prize for this. And, um, and really what they ended up proving is that Darwin's model where genetic variation and mutations are random, uh, randomly created, and then natural selection acts on that, that random variation to produce adaptations um, is consistent with their, with their experiment. And that, that model has, has held up. Okay. So moving on, mutations are random. And so normally when we think of mutations as being, when we think of processes as being random, then those processes are very hard to predict. Um, and so this is one of our goals as evolutionary biologists, and certainly evolutionary biologists that focus on the evolution of diseases, is to be able to predict how those diseases will change uh, and to understand what their, their capacity to evolve is. Um, in order to stop them from evolving or, or find ways to intervene, you know, if it's, if it's bacteria evolving antibiotic resistance or SARS jumping into a new host species, 
we want to be able to stop that evolution or at least predict um, when that evolution will happen. Um, and so our whole goal is to predict evolution. And so it's hard to predict evolution in part because the first step of the process is random mutation. It's a stochastic process. And so, you know, you might want to just sort of throw up your hands and stop there. But actually, mutations, while they are spontaneous and random, uh, there are characteristics about how they work that um, allow you to make predictions for, you know, how many mutations you expect to see, um, whether or not an organism is likely to get an adaptive mutation, um, and so forth. And so for this next section, I want to talk about you know, predicting mutation and uh, some mathematical equations for us to be able to actually predict whether or not we expect a bacteria or a virus to have mutations uh, or how many mutations will be in a population. Okay, so the thing that is very predictable about mutations is the rate at which they occur. And so this is a figure that I showed you um, from a couple lectures ago or actually just last lecture. And um, what we see is that we have coronavirus here and it has a very particular mutation rate. So that's what's happening on the y-axis and this is just genome size on the x-axis. Let's not worry about this right now. But we can see that this virus has a very particular mutation rate. These other RNA viruses have another characteristic mutation rate. Um, Double-stranded DNA viruses have another character, characteristic mutation rate. And so what this tells you is that, you know, given a certain organism, it has a specific mutation rate um, and that that should remain pretty consistent through time. And so if that's true, then we can make predictions for when we think, when we expect to see mutations happening in a certain, in, in a given organism. So remember, uh, coronavirus, I said, actually has a relatively low mutation rate compared to the rest of the RNA viruses. So RNA viruses tend to have a high mutation rate because the polymerase that they um, use uh, is, tends to be prone to errors. Um, but the coronavirus has uh, an even lower mutation rate than the rest of these. And so why is that? And that is because the coronavirus, unlike the other RNA viruses, actually have proteins um, that assist in replicating the RNA. Uh, these are NSP7 and NSP8. And so these proteins uh, help as the polymerase is going along. They're, they're called kind of proofreading proteins where they can detect whether or not there's an error being made in the, the RNA uh, and then they correct that, that error. And so what that does is it lowers the, the mutation rate of the virus. One interesting side note that you can take from all of this is that you know, these proteins can evolve. You could have a genome of the coronavirus that has these proteins deleted from the genome. And so that would actually cause the coronavirus to have a higher mutation rate. And so natural selection can actually fiddle with the mutation rates of organisms and that's what gives you all of this great variation in the, the, the mutation rates from one organism to the next. Uh, we'll talk about you know, what explains this variation in, in later lectures. But it's like this, this interesting idea that mutation rate itself is something that can evolve and that it feeds back and actually affects the, the rate of things by which things can evolve. 
Um, so it's kind of kind of interesting. Okay, so let's just get to the basics of mutation rates and what once we have measured mutation rates, what we can do with it. Okay, so for you to get a handle on how mutations are working and how this rate, how how this rate is calculated and how we use that rate, um, I, I want to give you this sort of visualization of what's going on as a genome is being replicated. This is an E. coli cell, obviously just a picture, uh, a cartoon of it. Um, an E. coli has a genome. It's double-stranded DNA. Um, this genome is 4.6 million bases. Um, and so when an E. coli replicates, it has to obviously replicate, duplicate the cell, but also has to duplicate the genome within the cell so that the daughter cell has a new copy of that genome. And so what happens is a polymerase moves along this, um, this DNA and that polymerase is replicating the DNA. And um, that, like we talked about before, that machine is not perfect. And so at some rate, it introduces mutations. It substitutes a wrong uh, nucleotide into that DNA sequence. And then whatever cell inherits that new genome, that's the cell that has a mutation in it. And so why I'm, why I'm sort of focusing on this and having you visualize this and this, this um, polymerase going around the genome and having some probability of creating an error, um, we can actually measure what that error rate is. And that error rate is what we call mu b, so the mutation rate of a single base in the genome is 5.4 times 10 to the minus 10. And so that's an extremely low error rate. Most of the time this polymerase gets it right, but sometimes it gets it wrong. Um, and uh, so I want you to, to, we are going to look at uh, three different kinds of mutation rates. And so I want you to pay attention to, to which one we're talking about at, at, a, at a given time. And so this is the, and what's important is to look at the, um, uh, what the, the rate is based on. And the, the, um, so for this, this is a per base error rate. So it's per base, but it's also per genome replication. And so that is 5.4 times 10 to the minus 10, very low. Okay, so now how do we, you know, now that we have this error rate, um, how do we actually use that to predict genetic variation in a bacterial population? And so the question that I want to ask you guys is if you have an error rate of this and the genome size of a bacterium or of this E. coli is this, do we expect that the daughter cell will have mutations? So don't worry about chiming in. Um, I'll just give you a second and then we'll move on to the answer. Okay, so the answer is no. We do not expect that that daughter cell has any errors in its genome. Yes, the genome is big, millions of bases, but the error rate is many magnitudes lower than the number of, of bases in the, in the genome. And so 
it, it means that we do not expect to see any mutations occurring. So how do I, you know, you can kind of look at those numbers and come to that conclusion, um, but sort of what's the, what's the equation that, that helps us actually figure that out? And so this, the equation is very simple. And so the rate that a daughter cell will receive a mutation is uh, the genome size. So that's the, number, that's the number of opportunities to produce an error times the rate at which those errors are produced. And that will give you 0.0025. So this is, there is a very low chance that this daughter cell would actually get a mutation. But there is, there is some chance, um, you know, 0.0025 is, is the rate of that chance happening. Okay, now I want to introduce um, another way of um, reporting mutation rates. And so often when people write about mutation rates, they're not, they don't say per base, per genome replication. They'll say a per genome mutation rate. Um, so this is just uh, the per genome mutation rate uh, for this, for, um, for E. coli, is 0.025, what we just calcu calculated. And so that's just saying, okay, here's the entire genome size, and we're going to times that by the per base rate. And that gives us then a per genome rate of acquiring mutations. Okay. So now that we have these different rates, let's, let's walk through a couple questions uh, so you get a feel for how to use these rates. So what is the average number of mutations you would observe in a population of 100 daughter cells? And if you're watching this video later, I would actually suggest just hitting pause, answering the question, and then moving on. Um, but here I'll, I'll just keep moving. And so the answer is 0 0.25. And so the calculation is, is straightforward. You have that per genome mutation rate, and then you have the number of daughter cells. So that's the number of genomes that were produced that potentially could acquire a mutation. And then that gives you the answer, which is, you know, we actually don't, um, we expect that, you know, just, that we shouldn't see, um, that we shouldn't actually see uh, mutations in this population, although there is, you know, a one in four chance that, that we would actually see uh, a mutation occurring. And so still, even with a population of 100 daughter cells, we don't expect to see uh, a, a mutation. Okay, so here's the next question. I'm sorry, I have to move my my window a little bit. At what population size do you expect to see a genome with one mutation? So this is just kind of flipping things on their head. At what population size do I expect to see just a single mutant of the bacteria? And so the answer to this question is 400. And so how did, how did we do this? So we took the Per, we just had to do a, a basic algebra. Um, we took the per genome mutation rate. We took the number of daughter cells. So that's what we're solving for is the number of daughter cells. 
And then we have the number of mutations in a population, and that is one. That's, that's given by the, the question. And so then we just solve for, for number of daughter cells. And so that's, we, that's the same per genome mutation rate. We're solving for the number of daughter cells equals one. Um, and then you can do the math. And the answer turns out to be 400. So the take-home message from this part of the lecture is that the mutation rate is low. Um, and because of that, most daughter cells actually look identical to their, um, their, their mother cell. And so uh, this is true for bacteria. Bacteria have a very low mutation rate. Um, this is not true for SARS-CoV-2. Um, SARS-CoV-2 has a high enough mutation rate and it has a genome size of 30,000 that we expect to start seeing every replication, probably one mutation is being introduced um, or, or maybe a handful of mutations. And so we actually expect to see a lot more genetic diversity um, in, that, in that viral population than we would um, with a, in a bacterial population where the, the mutation rate is very, very low. Okay. And so here's, here's another question. Do you expect that every population of 400 cells will have a single mutation? And the answer is no. We don't expect that every population of 400 cells will have a mutant bacteria. This is relating back to that Laurie and Delbrook experiment. Um, yes, on average, the populations will produce a mutant, but because mutation is a random process, then we um, don't, don't expect that it will happen in all of the populations that have 400 cells. Um, some of them will just, just be unlucky. And then of course, other ones will have, uh, have many mutations. Uh, it's just, um, it's just uh, uh, because it is a stochastic process. So we can, we can um, predict average behavior, but we can't predict exact behavior when we're talking about mutations. So think of mutations as this kind of weighted coin flip um, in, in terms of E. coli. You know, every time a cell divides, um, there's some low chance that it'll get a mutation, but you know, one in, in 400 times that, that cell does get a mutation, that daughter cell is a mutant. This coin flip process happens, you know, not just when cells are dividing, but at every uh, moment when a nucleotide is being replicated. And so, you know, there is this, this weighted coin flip happening also as the polymerase is going through the genome and replicating that genome. Okay, so I want you to sort of think about mutation rates and the population sizes of microbes in order to picture you know, how much genetic diversity do we expect to see in microbial populations. We know that the majority of bacteria are gonna look just like their, their mother cell and not be mutants, but microbial populations can be really, really large. Uh, and so for instance, in a test tube, we have two times 10 to the 10 cells of E. coli, typically. Um, and so in that test tube, there's so many genomes and so much opportunity for mutations to occur that we actually predict that there should be about 50 million mutations that have occurred in that, in that, 
in that test tube. And so um, what that means is that basically, you know, 50 million mutations, that's a ton of mutations. Um, the genome itself is an order of magnitude smaller than that. And so it suggests that basically every site in the genome at least once has been mutated um, within just a single test tube of bacteria. And so if you scale up and think about all the bacteria that live in your guts or all the bacteria in a certain environment, there's just a lot of potential for those bacteria to accumulate mutations and to, to evolve. So it's important that when we think about a bacterial population, we never have what is called an isogenic population where all of those bacterial cells are identical to each other. So bacteria, you know, they tend to reproduce by just splitting and making nearly identical copies of themselves, but they're not always identical. And because of how large those bacterial populations are, we have to think of them as being sort of a cloud of different genotypes. And some of those mutations actually influence their phenotypes. And so they also have a cloud of different phenotypes. Some of these phenotypes confer antibiotic resistance. Some of them confer uh, phage resistance. And some of them could change the pathogenicity of the bacteria or all kinds of other traits. And so just because you're studying sort of a single isolate of bacteria doesn't mean that it's not, some of its progeny are not going to be different um, and are not going to be able to evolve to, to maybe avoid your therapies or, or so forth. So I just want to say that you have to think of these populations as being diverse, genetically diverse, and having the potential to produce resistant cells. So I study uh, phages. Uh, that's the type of virus that I study. Uh, it's called lambda phage. It's very similar to the T1 phage that Laurie and Dalbrook were studying um, in their experiments. And, uh, and we sometimes in the lab run these mutation rate experiments where we um, uh, try to measure how, what's, the, what's the rate at which uh, e. coli, that's the host of lambda, e. coli evolves resistance to lambda phages. And what we end up getting typically is a rate of one times 10 to the minus seven per genome per replication. This value is um, lower than E. coli's per genome rate of mutation, which is 2.5 times 10 to the minus three, but it's higher than the per nucleotide rate of mutation, which is 5.4 times 10 to the minus 10. Why does this have this intermediate value. It's not the per base rate. It's not the per genome rate. It's somewhere in the middle between those two. So the answer is that this value is lower than E. coli's per genome rate of mutation because not every nucleotide in the genome will affect the E. coli's ability to resist lambda. So the per genome rate, I should say the mu g, um, that we were calculating is just the rate of a single mutation occurring anywhere in the genome. Um, and so for the, the rate of bacteria evolving resistance to the phage, if it were equal to that per genome rate, that would mean any change in the genome changes the bacteria in a way that the, the bacteria can avoid the phage. And that's, that's just not true. Many mutations in the genome have no effect at all on the bacteria, and so they won't affect the, the resistance of it to the phage. 
So the rate is higher than the per nucleotide rate because there are multiple different ways in the genome to mutate, the, mutate it so that it confers resistance to the phage. So we have multiple different genes in the genome that if they get a mutation and maybe the, the, the gene is interfered with, then it'll confer resistance to the phage. And so that, that mutation rate is higher than the per base rate of mutation. So how should we think about how this actually works? And I, I just want to describe what's going on at the molecular level. And so here is a diagram of a cartoon of lambda phage. And the way that lambda phage infects E. coli cells, this is the outer membrane of E. coli. Uh, it targets a very particular protein on the outer membrane of E. coli. It's called LAMB. So for um, uh, coronavirus, this is the ACE2 in humans. It's the equivalent, uh, it's the equivalent protein, it's called a receptor. And um, so lambda will bind to this receptor and then infect the cell. If the cell doesn't have this receptor, then lambda can't infect the cell. And so the easiest way for a cell to mutate in order to um, resist lambda is to just get rid of that receptor. That receptor is not important um, to the survival of the cell. Uh, in most environments, and so they can just mutate to get rid of that receptor. And so there's two genes that they can mutate in order to get rid of that receptor. One is they can directly mutate the LAMB gene itself, the gene that encodes for the protein LAMB, um, and that, that, that um, gene has 1,341 nucleotides, and there are 67 sites in that gene that if you, if you mutate those sites, it'll completely interfere with the production of that protein. And so if you interfere with the production of the protein, then you don't express the protein on the outer membrane of the E. coli cell, and then the phage can't get into the cell, and so the cell is resistant. Okay, so it's not just about LAMB though. There's also another protein called MALT, and MALT is a regulatory protein that um, what it does is it turns on LAMB. So if you have MALT around, it turns on LAMB. If you don't have MALT around, then LAMB is shut off and the cell is re resistant to the phage. And so another way that you can interfere with the production of LAMB is to get a mutation in MALT that knocks out its function so they can't turn on LAMB. And so it's a larger gene and it has 167 sites where you can get a disruptive mutation. And so what you can do then is make a calculation given the number of sites in the genome, if you mutate them, you're going to interfere with LAMB and confer resistance uh, to the phage. And so what this gives us is a rate of acquiring a resistant mutation. This is mu r. And um, the way that we can calculate this is it's the number of sites in the genome, 67 plus 167, times the per nucleotide mutation rate is that. And so that will give you a rate per genome replication for which you get a mutation that confers resistance to lambda. So this is our third category mutation rate. And it's a harder category to understand. It's a per genome replication rate, or per genome replication mutation rate, um, but 
it um, is giving you the rate at which certain types of mutations occur, and those mutations are the ones that, that uh, confer resistance. So mu r is this rate of resistance mutations. So um, the take-home message from here is that, you know, sometimes there's multiple different ways of getting a certain phenotype, so different genetic changes that give you the same phenotype, and the more different ways that you can get to that phenotype, um, the easier that adaptation is to evolve. Okay, so here's another question. What would it mean if the mutation rate for phage resistance was lower than the per-nucleotide per-genome replication rate? So if it was lower than 10 to the minus 10. Okay, this is a, a tricky question. Uh, actually, there's, there's two right answers. So if resistance cannot be achieved by a single mutation, but requires multiple mutations, then um, that the probability of not just getting one good mutation, but getting two good mutations simultaneously is extremely low. Um, the other answer is that, well, maybe resistance requires you know, some kind of really complex genomic change um, and that those kind of genomic changes happen at a lower rate. So maybe you have to get a very specific type of insertion or deletion and those things just happen at a very, very low rate in the genome. And so it'd be very difficult to actually achieve that. And then the last answer that was wrong is there's only one site in the genome that confers resistance. If there's only one site in the, in the genome that confers resistance, then the rate will be the per base uh, mutation rate. So this brings us, this, this sort of thinking brings us to um, something uh, back to thinking about um, uh, infectious diseases and how we can use mutation rate to um, better administer therapies of infectious diseases. And so this idea that if you need multiple resistance mutations, then the probability of acquiring those resistance mutations is extremely low, is um, what is the logic that underlies why we sometimes give multiple different antibiotics, or in the case of HIV treatments, we always give at least a cocktail of three different uh, drugs. And so here I'm just going over the math um, behind uh, these drug cocktails. And so now we're asking sort of what is the mutation rate of resistance of a bacteria when it's challenged by three different uh, antibiotics. And so these numbers here are the mu r for ampicillin, mu r for canamycin, mu r, mu r for chloramphenicol. Um, you know, they have slightly different rates. Um, and so that means that there's just different um, opportunities in the genome to evolve resistance, more for this guy, least for this guy. Um, and, uh, but the way that we calculate mu resistance to all of these antibiotics is by just multiplying this number by that number by that number, and that gives you 10 to the minus 18 per genome replication. And so that is, is an extraordinarily low number. And so it is unlikely for bacteria to evolve resistance when you hit them with multiple challenges simultaneously. Okay, here is a question um, that just follows up on what I just went over. Okay, so the answer to this is just um, 10 to the minus six times 10 to the minus seven, which gives you 10 to the minus 13. Um, just note the wording of the question. 
Uh, I don't like tricky questions, um, but uh, just to make this as similar as the last question, I just removed one of the antibiotics, canamycin, um, and we get this answer of 10 to the minus 13. Okay, so I want to, for the, the rest of the lecture, we have about five minutes left, um, I want to go over how do we actually calculate these mutation rates. And by going over this, we're going to go full circle back to that Laurie and Dalbrook experiment because we can use that, that, plat, that pattern of colonies on plates to actually then calculate the mutation rate that mu r resistance to T1 phage. Okay, so we have, um, this is just from that exact same cartoon that we were looking at before. And so I'm going to calculate a rate based on that cartoon, those results from the, the experiment. Um, this rate is gonna seem wrong just because the numbers are so weird in this experiment. You know, we just have eight cells down, down here. Um, so we have a population size of eight, whereas, you know, a normal experiment, uh, population sizes are huge and the mutation rates are really low. So this is going to seem artificially high because it is. But it just follows up on the, on the um, uh, you know, cartoon experimental results that we saw from before. Okay, so what, what we have to, what we make is a column of number of mutants that we see on these plates. And there's multiple different methods to calculate mutation rates. Um, we're going to use the easiest one. This was published in the 1943 paper. It's the zero method. It's really elegant. Um, it does have some, some problems, but it gets you within the ballpark of what the mutation rate is. Uh, but there are more advanced ways of calculating this that you can, you can look up. And um, so what we're, this is the zero method because it focuses on how many, what proportion of the plates have no colonies on them at all. Um, and so what, what are these, these variables? So this is just E, you know, the, the basic math term. Um, and uh, this is M, that's the average number of mutations uh, from each population. So the average, average number of mutations that occurred in each of these populations. Um, and P0 is the proportion of the number of zero plates. Okay, so we have two out of eight plates. So one fourth of the plates had, had no colonies on them at all. We have E to the minus M. We wanna solve for this, this number of mutations. That's gonna help us then compute the rate of mutations. So you have to know how many typically occurred in the, in the experiment, and then you can calculate the rate from that. And so you just do a little bit of algebra, and that gets you to this value of 1.38 mutations occurred on average within all of these populations. And so now, in order to get a rate, you need to know, you know how many new cells uh, formed in each of these populations. And so then it'll be the number of mutations per the number of new cells that, that formed. And so the number of new cells that formed is, is the, the population size uh, when, when the population was put onto the, the Petri dish. And so mu r is just m divided by n, that's population size. So this is just pointing out here that we have eight cells. In each of these experiments, we're applying eight cells to the plates. 
And so then it's just 1.38 divided by eight gives you 0.172. Now, obviously this is a mu r that's really, really high because these numbers are very low, um, just so that we can visualize them more easily. Um, in your homework, we will go over uh, more typical types of calculations. Um, and so note that the mu r is gonna be a lot lower, more like that 10 to the minus seven that, that I observed in my lambda experiments. Okay, so here is just another um, question that follows up just identically to what we just did. Um, obviously the numbers are different now. Uh, and so this, this just gives you an opportunity to practice it. Okay, and that is just following, you know, plugging and chugging um, based on uh, the, the previous slide. Okay, so we're at the end of the lecture. We're about on time. Um, here are just a number of slides that, um, uh, re, uh, that point out the, the most important subjects. So we had these different types of mutation rates. And uh, what I find is really fascinating is that mutation rates in different organisms happen at different rates. Um, and that that rate is very predictable um, given an organism, uh, but that there's also all of this, this interesting variation. Um, we ran, went over the experiment, the Lorien-Dalbrook experiment, um, where we uh, found out that mutations for T1 resistance were spontaneous, um, and that was by creating a, a model, then make, predicting a distribution for experimental results, um, and then comparing experimental results to those different distributions, and whichever one matches is the one that likely explains um, uh, the nature of mutation. And then uh, in the end, we also figure out a way to use the results from that experiment to actually calculate the mutation rate uh, for resistance to T1 um, uh, of the, the bacteria. And I want you to always remember that given how large po um, uh, population sizes are of viruses and of bacteria, uh, there's lots of potential for mutation and lots of potential for evolution. Okay, so, uh, yep, that concludes the, the, um, the presentation. And thank you, guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.